This will be the first message in a new series that I am entitling just simply miracles. Miracles. More than perhaps at any other time in our lives with everything going on in the world around us from the pandemic to financial reversals to Afghanistan to vaccines to uh, you name it. People are upset about everything right now. And you may be upset because they are upset and feel like they ought to take your position. Have, have you ever seen such a fractured and divided time as the time in which we live? I know this much that there's never been a time like right now for miracles to occur. And never have they been so greatly needed as today. And for perhaps many of you, this message that I'm going to preach today and maybe even the whole series will not be very urgent for you because everything's copacetic. You're fine. You're in good shape. 401k is doing great. Grandkids are doing well in school. The whole thing. Your children's marriages are fine. Maybe that's the case with you. But trust me, even if you don't need what I'm going to talk about in this series, you will come to need it. You will. And that is because we live in a broken world and there's an enemy that is constantly pursuing each one of us to bring into our lives as much difficulty, pain, and anguish as he possibly can. This message will become relevant to you at some point if it isn't already. My preparation, for example, to guide this church through this crisis did not begin two years ago when the crisis began. It began 34 years ago when I came here to pastor. All of that was preparation for this moment that we are now in trying to navigate the church through this whole storm that we're going through. I'm I'm told that one out of five churches are going to completely shut down if they haven't already. And that attendance will, in some places, you know, it will never be quite what it used to be, even if COVID goes away, which you and I know probably is not going to be the case. We're living with signs all around us that are like, I'm reading Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 2 Timothy 3, the whole book of Revelation. I mean, if you don't believe in the end times, you you need to go read those chapters that I just mentioned. Amen. You see, God knew what was coming in China in November of 2019 before China ever knew it was coming. And he knew what would come to the United States and Houston and the rest of the world in March of 2020. God knows what's going to happen in your life too. He knows what's going to happen long before you ever see the first glimpse of it crossing over the distant horizon. I have an objective that I'm asking God to help me to accomplish this morning. And that is that I do not want to just preach a sermon. I really feel like my assignment is different. So I'm going to present this in a different way. I'll start out teaching, maybe preaching, maybe treating (laughs) a little bit. And then I'm going to ask you to interact with me. At the end of the message, I'm going to ask that you participate. I want to enlist your help in completing this before I'm done. And I turn to our text in Psalms 96, verses 1 through 2. And you remember the old days when we we used to read out loud together, the pastor and the congregation? I I want you to do that with me because it's right there on the screen. And if you would, don't forget also while you're turning there, if you're looking on your devices instead, Bishop Tudor's with us next Sunday. That's going to be phenomenal. But I'd like for you to read with me. Psalms 96, verses 1 through 2. Would you do that? And I want you to read it out loud where somebody around you can hear. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Father, I ask that you would speak with us right now. Let your word penetrate into our hearts that is let it move beyond our ability to understand things intellectually and grip us in the very soul of our existence speak revelation to us inwardly that will change and transform us in Jesus name and everybody said and shouted amen Amen. 
Did you see that in the text? Sing to the Lord. Didn't just say that once. It said it three times. Sing to the Lord. Then it said sing to the Lord a new song. And it said sing to the Lord all the earth. And sing to the Lord and bless his name. When you sing to the Lord, you bless his name. When you sing to the Lord, you proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. I want to speak today as we begin this series of miracles from the subject setting the atmosphere. Setting the atmosphere. You can create the atmosphere for a miracle. Miracles often occur during God encounters. They often occur during God encounters. By definition, a miracle is a supernatural act of God. It is something beyond human agency or power or ability. And for that reason, a miracle then presupposes that an encounter with God occurs sometime during the course of a miracle being performed. I actually know of no better way in all the years that I've been serving Christ I've never learned a better way to have a God encounter than in worship. I don't know of any that exist. God encounters seem to occur most often during times of, and I'm going to make this statement. I want you to listen carefully. Deeper worship. I'm going to use that phrase. Everybody say deeper worship. I'll say it like this. I don't know anyone who has had a God encounter when they were praying Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, that that kind of prayer. I don't know anybody who had a God encounter when they were saying grace for a meal. Like, good bread, good meat, good Lord, let us eat. Amen. Don't know anybody who had a God encounter doing that. So you can't really talk about miracles without considering the role that worship plays in setting the atmosphere for a miracle to happen. Deeper worship helps you experience a God encounter. It positions you where you are more likely to experience a miracle. And a God encounter often results in something supernatural occurring. I believe that one reason that miracles are not more common is that people sometimes focus on the wrong thing. We are always focused on the problem We're focused on what's going on around us. We need a miracle and we come to God in desperation and in need. And it is so shocking when you look into the word of God to discover that God did not respond to need. He responded to faith and worship. I'll get into that in this series. But people focus on the wrong thing. They put all of their focus on receiving a miracle when I think personally It's my observation, and I think it's been borne out in several decades of ministry now, that it would be better to focus on encountering God than on needing a miracle. Another reason that miracles are uncommon is because worship, this is just an assessment, guys. Don't charge me for this. I don't mean it to in any way be demeaning or belittling of anything you do in worship, but our worship can be pretty shallow. It really can Yeah, You're more likely to see people get caught up in a sporting event or a rock concert who don't even know God than you are caught up in the presence of God in a worship service. I attended concerts years ago. They may not be your greatest, but they were my greatest. Amen. The B.B. Kings, the uh, Freddie Kings, you know, those guys... Albert King, I called them the three kings, man. That's, that's what inspired me to start playing a guitar years ago. Man, people could get caught up in all that stuff, and they still do. They still do. But worship service? Not so much. If we learn to go deeper into our, our personal worship, an encounter with God becomes more likely and could even happen to someone. It could even happen in this service this morning. It really could. You never know when God will show up to do a miracle. We had a miracle just a a few weeks ago. And a lady that sits right over in that area, right over there. And she had cancer and she was healed. I haven't yet gotten permission to call her name. But God works miracles. 
And if it doesn't happen today that you receive one, I pray that what I'm going to teach will put you in the position to experience it at some time in your future, whether that's in your personal devotional time or whether it's in another worship service. I'm sure you don't really care which one of those it is as long as it happens, right? In the Bible, deeper worship often led to miracles. In the Old Testament, do you remember the story? Israel defeated Amalek as long as Moses' hands were lifted in the air in the posture of worship. The moment he put them down, the battle reversed and Israel began to lose. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, an amazing miracle occurred against impossible and overwhelming odds when Jehoshaphat sent worshipers into the battle first rather than the little army he was leading. I mean, the little army wouldn't have done much anyway because the, the force against him was so massive and so great. They would have been run over like they weren't even there. And God said, don't send the army, send the worshipers out first. Many of the miracles we read of in the gospels occurred when people came before Christ in worship. In Matthew 8 and 2, a leper came and worshiped and said, if you will to Jesus, You can make me clean. And immediately Jesus healed him. Because if there's one thing that moves the heart of God, it is worship. Matthew 19, 18, Jarius came and worshiped Christ and asked him to come lay his hand on his daughter. As we heard Bishop Lambert Gates preach last Sunday. And he asked Christ to come and heal his daughter. By the time Jesus got there, his daughter was dead. But that didn't stop. Jesus, because in the atmosphere of worship, anything can happen. He's not limited to just healing a headache or a cold. God can do things that will shock you, that will stun you, that will amaze you, because that's who he is. He's God. In Matthew 15, 25, the Syrophoenician woman came and worshiped Jesus and sought deliverance for her daughter who was possessed of a demonic spirit. And Jesus delivered her from her demonic oppression. In Mark 5 and 6, the demoniac of Gadara saw Christ, a man with 6,000 demons in him, and ran to worship Jesus. And what psychologists and psychiatrists and medicine could not do, Jesus did. He set him free from that legion of demonic spirits. Acts 16, while in Philippi, Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel and they met with such resistance that they were apprehended, physically beaten, thrown into an inner prison. And in spite of their pain, and this is so key, they still managed to focus upon the greatness of God. And instead of commiserating with one another about how bad things were, they began to sing praises to God at the midnight hour. I just have a feeling that sometimes when you're up against midnight, worship works better than complaining or focusing on the problem that's going on around you or your circumstance. God showed up and changed their dire situation completely, sent an earthquake. And all of these miracles happen when people worshiped. In the case of Paul and Silas, God completely turned that thing around. And it's why these miracles happen that I want to focus on. It's because in their desperation, they moved into deeper worship than they might have at another point in their life. Deeper worship leads to God encounters. I want you to say that. Deeper worship leads to God encounters. All together, one more time. Deeper worship leads to God encounters. What is your benchmark? What is your benchmark? How deep do you normally go in worship? Whatever that is, if you can learn to go deeper, it creates an atmosphere for the supernatural. And God encounters often result in miracles. And here's... What I think is so important, God never changes. If they employed a particular agency or methodology that resulted in a miracle for them, it seems reasonable to me to conclude that someone else could do the same thing and might receive a similar result. God doesn't change. It's just, it's reasonable to infer that. That if somebody in deeper worship gets a miracle, maybe I can too. 
The question here that I want to talk about is how can corporate worship help you go deeper in your personal worship and make your personal devotion more meaningful to you? And to do that, we should first understand that corporate worship actually has a purpose. It does. It is meant to help you experience in your personal devotion. These are two separate things. Some people, the only devotional time they have is at church. You really should have a personal devotional time and a corporate devotional time when we all come together. Amen. And corporate worship is designed for you to take away something that makes your personal worship more meaningful whenever you are worshiping God alone and by yourself. Amen. Because the crowd can't always be with you. The band won't always be there. The worship leaders aren't going to be there in your car singing while you're going through a middle of a trial and you're overwhelmed as you're driving to work. No, or you're sitting outside a hospital and a loved one is inside on a ventilator. These guys, we'd love to be there, but we can't. And what corporate worship is designed to do is help you be able to move deeper than you might go by yourself. Amen. That's why God requires that people assemble together. It was a law in Israel. All the males had to show up three times a year. If you didn't, your goods were confiscated. You, you had no choice. You had to go to church back in the day. Amen. And that's why Jesus, or rather the writer of Paul, says in Hebrews 10, 25, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And I got it. I, I really do. I got it. I'm not condemning anybody. Those of you watching at home, I, I truly do understand. And not once during this crisis have I put pressure on anybody. But in these troubling times, it can be difficult for people with underlying physical conditions to come to the house of God. They are concerned about their health. And, but here's what I'm driving at. We should always be honest. We should with ourselves about whether or not we're using this pandemic as an excuse to become lazy in our devotional practices. That's what's key. Amen. You see, you don't have to explain anything to me. You, you don't tell me you've got an underlying condition. I accept that and I pray for you and I love you and I'll never judge you. But I, I, there is one who says, mm, doesn't seem to stop them from going everywhere else they want to go. I, I'm sorry. I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just saying, be real. Like Shakespeare said, be true to yourself. Amen. Because God looks down from heaven and he knows if we're just running game on him or not. God knows. And you say, well, well, uh, you know, that's kind of hard. The point I'm making is you may find yourself backed into a corner and you might need God to show up. And if you haven't developed your personal devotional life when you could have, and that's what I'm getting at. So today I want to talk about one of the most common expressions of corporate worship that we engage in for the next few minutes. And, and that's singing, singing. We're instructed in the Bible to sing. But, and this really matters too, it's who we're singing to that counts. Sing unto the Lord. Say it with me. Sing unto, one more time, sing unto whom? Our text tells us to sing unto the Lord. He also says to sing a new song. And frankly, one of the things that has helped my own personal devotional life is the shift in the way lyrics to songs are being written these days from the way they used to be written Back in the day, and I was raised by a praying grandmother, you've heard me say that. I grew up with songs like, a mighty fortress is our God. And when the roll is called up yonder, and we will understand it better by and by, and I'll fly away. And those are all great. But did you notice these are, those are either about, about God or about us and our experience. They're not sung to God. That's the point. Lyrics today like that last one, they just sing move me profoundly in my personal devotional time because I can use that and I can say to him in a way that I might not be able to articulate as well. Personally, you deserve the highest praise. And I get to thinking about all the good things he's done and I begin to re mention those to him and it breaks me. I become undone before the Lord. 
And like me, you might not have the greatest voice in the world either, but thankfully God doesn't judge our worship on how good our voices is, right? Amen. What we need to know in scripture is there's something profound, and I'm going to talk to you about singing, about worshiping God with song. You can literally reverse the attack of the enemy. Look at Psalms 9 verses 2 through 3. I will jump for joy and shout in triumph as I sing your song and make music for the most high God. For when you appear, I worship while all of my enemies run in retreat. They stumble and perish before your presence. When you begin to worship God, this is a song. David is saying, as I'm worshiping the Lord and singing to God, the enemy that assembled against me says, oh my God, and turns and runs. And they perish. Why? Because God shows up. They perish at your appearance. Worship draws the presence of God. That's what happened after Paul and Silas were beaten and cast into prison. They began to sing songs unto the Lord. They didn't have a big choir. They didn't have the worship team. They didn't have the band with them. But they sang together. Literally the smallest expression of corporate worship that you could ever see. Two people, that's all. And they were worshiping. But when they did, it shook heaven. And when heaven shakes, trust me, the world shakes too. Amen. You can move heaven with your worship. And God reversed what was happening in that jail. Amen. And they had a revival where before the future didn't look too bright for them. I think about what happened when David faced Goliath. Many people don't realize this. But there's a psalm that David wrote as he was going into battle. You can learn some fascinating things about the psalms if you'll take the time to dig into them and read some of the titles of the psalms. And in Psalms 144, you read the Psalms that David wrote when he was 16 years old and was going out to face Goliath. And he went out and God literally, as David is singing that song and Goliath is cursing, God calls the whole situation to be reversed. Amen. And what Goliath intended to do to David is what David did to Goliath. He used Goliath's sword to cut off Goliath's head. Is there anybody that needs divine reversal in this house today? No, I'm serious. That's not rhetorical. Is there anybody that God needs to show up in your life because you have a situation that needs to be reversed before this day is over. Back to Jehoshaphat and the children of Judah against the Moabites, Ammonites, and Mount Seir, 2 Chronicles 20, 22. Now when they begin to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. What did this little ragtag band of people do? They sang to the Lord. And when they did, God said, that's it. Turning the whole thing around. And he did. And set ambushments against the people who had come to attack the enemy. Instead of grumbling about your problem. Instead of complaining. Instead of feeling like God forgot about you. In the middle of your darkest hour, you need to begin to praise God. And give him worship. The real power of deeper worship is the effect it can have on your personal life and needs. You come with needs and those needs can be so compelling and overwhelming that that is what constantly is in your thought. And you just can't get away from it. But if you can manage to switch your thinking and your attention from the need to God and go deeper in worship, whatever that baseline is. Like at a hospital, they take your vitals because that's your baseline, right? And they want to know if your blood pressure is low and drops, or if they want to know if it's soaring, or they want to know if your temperature is going up. So they measure your vitals against the baseline. When God measures your worship against whatever your baseline is, and you go deep in worship, I'm telling you that something begins to happen. It leads to God encounters, and God encounters make miracles happen. You see, most of us have been taught that all forms of worship are equal, but I don't really think that's true. I think there are different depths and levels of worship. 
Amen. And I think that we were taught that all worship is equal because there are some people who don't want to go any deeper. They just want to go through that practice, as it were, when they come to the house of God. I want us to revisit the tabernacle for just a moment. I've, I've talked about this and then I'm going to close. One of the most fascinating places that existed on the planet was the ancient tabernacle. It was fascinating because it wasn't designed by men. It was designed by God himself. Now, can you imagine that God is the architect? And that tabernacle was so prophetic. It too was layered with levels of revelation as to what each item and each thing in the tabernacle, including the tabernacle itself, represented. God designed it. What it really represented was the worship of heaven. God allowed Moses to peer into heaven and see the glorious place of his dwelling. It was extraordinary to have an experience like that was, must have been mind altering. It must have changed Moses for as long as he lived. And I can tell you that God encounters have that ability to change you for as long as you live. And you will never be the same again. Is there anybody in this room that would like to be changed and indelibly permanently marked for the rest of your life by an encounter with God? Amen. God's dwelling is his worship. And Moses looked into heaven and saw the dwelling of God who inhabits praise. In Psalm 22 and 3, but you are holy, enthroned, where? In the praises of Israel. We are the New Testament body of Christ, are the people of God. So God is enthroned in our praises. The Lord then instructed Moses to build an earthly tabernacle that would be a facsimile or representation of the worship of heaven. Where people could come and gather to worship and meet with him. Exodus 25, 8 through 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Just as God dwelt in the praises of heaven. God said, if you overlay the worship of men on earth with this template that I've just shown you in heaven. If you create a template and you pattern your worship after what you saw. Just like I dwell in the praises of heaven. I will dwell in the praises of my people. And I will be enthroned here. Somebody ought to say amen. And so... Moses was instructed in Exodus, Exodus 25, 40, see to it that you make everything that you make according to the pattern which was shown you on the mount. That's the template, the pattern. Women who have sewn dresses and, you know, that whole thing, they have patterns. Men build homes. People construct buildings based on a pattern, an architectural drawing. And the tabernacle created a template that was based on heaven's worship. And Moses said, if you will cause the worship on earth to look like the worship of heaven, I'll come and dwell in that worship just like I dwell in the worship of heaven. Oh, I know. I got it. The tabernacle also foreshadowed many other things. The coming of the Messiah, God's plan of redemption, a whole host of things. That's what actually John the Revelator was seen on the Isle of Patmos, but Moses was seeing it from before it happened. And now John is seeing Christ walking among the candlesticks, uh, a, a different point in time in this whole paradigm here. But, but what you need to understand is that it was really about worship. And that's important. And I want to show you why. Because if God comes and is enthroned in his worship, then where God is, the chaos, the destruction, the pain, the anguish that has been brought upon this world by sin cannot exist in close proximity to God. Everything where God is, everything around him is perfect. It, it cannot be less than that. Nothing can mar or spoil the perfection that is surrounding him. And so I want to say it like this. Heaven is not heaven because it's heaven. You probably have thought about this, but it isn't. It's not heaven just because they named it heaven. And the name doesn't have any real meaning outside of what it represents. Nor is heaven because there isn't any COVID-19 there or cancer or leukemia or kidney failure. 
And we have a man here today, Brian, I'm so glad you're here, shared with me. And he's just recovering from a devastating attack in his lungs. And I want you to pray for him. But, but just raise your right hand right over here where Brian is. That's him right there. Dear friend for many years. And his kidneys had failed and God healed his kidneys. But he still needs a touch in his lungs. Amen. And do me another favor. Raise your hand right over here toward pastors, the, the pastors of Borden that are here this morning. Say, we bless you in the name of Jesus. Would you do that? Because in the presence of God, when you pray, things happen. Someday I'm going to write a book about praying prayers behind the veil. We always pray them outside the veil. What happens if you get behind the veil and pray? Amen. Heaven is in heaven because there are no ambulances or hospitals. And it's not heaven because people don't grow old there or go hungry. Or because there isn't any crime or prisons or death or cemeteries. Heaven is heaven because that's where God is. And those other things cannot exist where God is at. Because he is the summation of all perfection and beauty. I need somebody to say hallelujah in this place today. Oh come on, somebody give God some praise. With the tabernacle, at one level, it represents the plan through the Messiah that would come where you can get back into the presence of God. But yet in another way, it also represents the worship of heaven, as I've said. And there were three dimensions in the tabernacle, right? There was this whole courtyard thing. It had a fence around it with curtains, and we won't even, I I wish I had time to do a study in that. That's that's for another day, what the curtains themselves represented. And and there was a tent here, and so you'd enter into the gates that faced toward the east. And and when you came into the gates, you you were in the courtyard, and then there was this tent, and it was comprised of two compartments. There was the, the, the holy place and the most holy place. And the objective now in our study today, because we can come boldly to the throne, according to the Hebrews, book of Hebrews, is to learn to get into that holy place. Because Israel, the high priest would only go there once a year for a few minutes, yet he changed the entire situation for Israel for the next 12 months. He opened heaven over their lives by being behind the veil. If you get behind the veil, it will change everything in your life if you can get there in worship but psalms 100 talks about a progression psalms 100 verse 1 make a joyful shout to the lord all ye lands this is not just for israel this was for everybody serve the lord with gladness and shout this out with me come before his presence with that was not a shout let's try it again come Please note both the instruction and the objective. We are to come before his presence. And so what the writer does is he starts with the objective first. Singing comes, brings us into the presence of God. But he backs up because you just don't just jump over the fence, the tent, and push the curtain aside. He goes on to say a little bit further in verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Now we can get where he is with singing. Well, just stay with me for a moment. But to get there, you got to go through here. And what is through here is the gate and the outer court and then the holy place, which is the first room. And then you come to the most holy place. And so what happens is he said, you enter his gates with thanksgiving. You know, you know, one of the most difficult things to do for us is whenever things are going wrong to give God thanks. When your life is falling apart and your marriage is on the rocks and you don't know where your kids are and they won't talk to you. And when you just got served notice, you're going to lose your job. Can you lift up your hands and thank God anyway, just because he's good, just because he's your savior? That's hard because it's so compelling when we face these things that our mind is drawn to them. It's drawn to them. We can't stop thinking about them. But we don't enter his gates until we can learn to lay that stuff down and step through the gates with thanksgiving, which then we're at that point, we're in the outer courtyard, right? Okay, but there's still two other places we've got to go. 
And the Bible says, enter his gates with thanksgiving into his courts with praise. I rather view that as a progression. You can differ with me. That's cool. I don't mind you being wrong at all. Amen. You know, you can have a difference of opinion and theology and I love you anyway. I'm just telling you what I've experienced in my devotional life. That when I thank God, I come into that place. But then... Listen to this. When I begin to praise him, it draws me even closer. And I get inside that place where he lives. Because actually the word that is used here in Hebrew for court has several meanings. It not only means a fenced-in enclosure. It also means a settled abode or dwelling. In this case, we're talking about the abode of God, the dwelling of God. He inhabits the praises of his people. So I step into the gates with thanksgiving. I come into that first room as I praise, and then I approach him with singing. And listen, this is the problem right now, and I'm going to wrap it up. Oftentimes, our singing is very shallow. I'm just going to lay it out there. And you know, if, if I offend you, I don't mean to. You pray for me. I need the prayer. You need the practice. It'll help both of us that way. Amen. I'm not being unkind. The command to sing is found 121 times in the King James Version of the Bible. 209 times if you use the New English translation. It's the most recorded commandment in the Bible. Sing. So you, you like me and you don't have the greatest voice in the world. But I want to tell you something, that song that they were singing a while ago, that, that, that was my song with God. Do you know how you and your wife have, have a song? When you were dating, before you married, you, you remember? There's a song. God and I have a song. We have several of them. And when I sing those, it's not the matter of my voice. Or it's quality that, that is important. Amen. One of the reasons that singing is so helpful is that the words of a song can express intimacy toward God in a way that many of us on our own are not capable or articulate enough to be able to to say to God, we don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the emotional vocabulary. We have a difficult time expressing emotions. Many of us do. But we're careful. We're guarded. You know, that's true. It, it even differs from one ethnicity to another. There are people that, I mean, like, like Hispanics, and, and this is not to demean you guys because this is just an observation. You know, I tell some people, hey, I love you, brother, and they look at it and say, I appreciate you. Amen. <laughs> I find it very hard to use that word love. And when you can't use it freely among one another, and they're not the only ones, because if you've been damaged and wounded and hurt by life, you put up walls too. I don't care what ethnicity you are. And when you put up walls, it's hard for you to say anything that is emotionally revealing, that opens you up and leaves you undone, where you could experience rejection. But that's what I'm trying to tell you. With God, there will never be rejection. God will never... Turn your worship away. And the more you go into deeper worship, the more God embraces you. The more God receives you. God will never say no to you when you approach him in worship and in praise. I asked a missionary I was preaching for in uh, Costa Rica why that was that way and he said that's our culture he said it's our culture we we often don't use the word love except for a a husband to wife and we kind of think it's a little odd when men use it among themselves but in you know just frankly I'm going to talk to you for just a moment whether you're Anglo or whoever you are and I'm talking as a pastor in a multicultural context right now not meaning to offend anybody certainly But I want to tell you, your love language is going to determine how deep you go with God. Amen. And you're going to have to be able to tell him things that you are not comfortable saying to other people. And one reason songs are so important is they will help articulate that. So I'm going to spend my last few minutes now. I want want you to help me. I'm going to ask you to please stand. The words of a song can help you reach a deeper level of expression in your personal devotion. I want you to listen to this, and I want you to say this with me. The key key 
Come on, shout it out loud. The key is to own the words and make them your own. Don't just sing them. Make them your words. Make them the expressions of your heart. In the moment, make them the expression of your sentiments. In this hate-filled society, it's so fractured and divided. There are very many people that can't use that word love. I've had grown men tell me that their dad never told them that he loved them until he was on his deathbed, literally minutes away from dying. I've had other men tell me that not once in my life did my father ever tell me that he loved me. Father fractures and wounds that are very deep and profound. And that, what, that took place on a horizontal level has a profound effect on your vertical relationship. I'm taking just a moment longer than I did in the first service because I don't know what's going to happen in this one. And I'm, gonna just, I'm not going to officially close the service today. I'm going to just tell you that in advance. There are a couple of other worship songs that I use in my personal devotion that I want to share with you. And I'm going to take the time to go through them. One is a touch of heaven because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about bringing heaven here. And the words go like this. And I want you to read them out loud. And I want you to say them good and loud with me. How I live for the moments where I'm still. Come on, say it. How I live for the moment where I'm still in your presence all the noise dies down you have all my attention I will linger and listen I can't miss a thing one reason that some of us don't have deeper encounters with God our worship doesn't go deeper and produce a God encounter is we're too busy doing this Sometimes you need to get quiet and all the noise needs to die down and you need to say, Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention, not part of my attention, all of my attention. I don't want to miss a thing, Lord. Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. Say that with me. Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. My heart wants something new. So I surrender all, not part, not most things. I surrender it all right now. I make myself bankrupt before you right now, God. All I want is to live within your love. Say that. Be undone by who you are. When was the last time you had an encounter with God that left you undone? Where you couldn't compose yourself? There's something addictive about this. God had to tell Moses, Moses, get down from the mountain. I get the impression in reading that, that once you get in the presence of God like Moses did, you don't, you don't want to leave. You're not worried about time anymore. My desire is to know you deeper. Lord, I will open up again. Throw my fears into the wind. I am desperate for a touch of heaven. And this is the way you sing that. Would you lead us? How I live for the moments. Would you raise your hands? Where I'm still in your presence. All noise dies down. Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention. 
touch of heaven? What would happen if we became desperate for a touch of heaven? Or the cry of my heart is, God, I want to know you. I want to be undone. I want to be in your presence. I want to be where you are. I need you more than I need the air that's in my lungs and the blood that's in my veins. I, I need you, God. Deeper, deeper worship, deeper worship, deeper worship, not superficially singing words, but owning them and embracing God in the process. You feel that happening here. sense that. that. That's what I'm talking about. The Spirit responds when we seek Him. You said, seek my face, and I said, your face, Lord, I will seek. There's another song. Because I'm, I'm you know, I might be naive, but I'm hoping that after this service today, that it will profoundly impact the way that you worship God and that from this day forward some of us that have just been singing words but wanting to go deeper because that's your heart that you'll be a little more equipped to do that very thing here's another song I use this in my morning devotions too it's entitled Make Room and it goes like this here's where I lay it down Every burden, every crown. That means my problems and my morning devotions, I I just forget about those, God. Oh, I've had a few problems. I just had open heart surgery three months ago. I know a little bit about problems. It was the second time. I was born with a genetic problem. Didn't even know I had. So I know about burdens. But I not only lay my burdens down, I lay my crowns down. That's my achievements, my wins, my accomplishments. I lay all of that down because you see, either one of them can be a distraction to you. Your burdens can be a distraction and your wins can be a distraction. When you come to before God, you need to come focused on Him and Him alone. Here's where I lay it down. Every burden, every crown, this is my surrender. And it's an intentional act of the will that when I go to my devotions, I am going to lay it down. It may not want to be laid down, but it's going to get laid down. It may want me to think about it. It might want me to 
just wallow in it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to seek the face of God. I'm going to worship God today. I'm going to give God the praise he deserves. I'm going to give him honor. I'm going to give him glory. I'm going to give him my heart. I'm going to lay it down. Every lie, every doubt, this is my surrender. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. To do whatever you want to. I will make room for you. Are you making room for God in your schedule? Are you making room for God to show up in your worship? Are you making room right now? We're a couple minutes over. Are you making room for God right now? I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. And that is the key. Whatever he wants. To do whatever you want to. Would would you sing that, Steph? I want you to sing that. Would you sing it with your hands raised? Every burden, every crown. This is my surrender. This is my surrender. Here is where I lay it down. Every lie and every doubt. This is my surrender. of the Lord that is here that's all it takes is just turning your eyes to Him you see a lot of us I I ask you to raise your hands for a reason because that is the posture of worship I'm not saying you have to do that the whole service that's not what I'm saying but I will tell you when I'm seeking God this is what I'm doing right here I'm trying to own the words of the songs that this team sings up here. Father, would you lead us deeper into your presence? Would you teach us to go beyond superficial singing and superficial acts of church attendance? And would you become the passion of our heart and our lives? God, would you set a fire burning inside of us that nothing can quench outside of being where you are? God, we hunger for you. We desire you. 